Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program... The American Medical Women's Association has issued a disapproving response to the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. Get the heck out of the health care. Stay out of the uterus. You know, health should be between the physicians and their patients and other health care pro- providers. That's where the decisions need to be made. It shouldn't be made at a legislative level. It shouldn't be made anyplace else. I'll speak with the association's president. Also this hour, it's called the Documenters Network, and it's a community-focused partnership from the independent local news outlet, Canopy Atlanta, and also in partnership with City Bureau out of Chicago. Now, what it does? Well, you'll find out. It pays area residents to monitor local government meetings, something that we do. We'll talk about the goal of connecting people within their communities, all while building accountability and government. Important community conversations coming up. But first this, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation wants to know who's responsible for blowing up part of an obscure roadside attraction. The Georgia Guidestones are in Elbert County. It's about 100 miles northeast of Atlanta. As we hear from Susanna Capaluto about the Wednesday explosion. The Guidestones are made up of granite slabs that display inscriptions for future generations, according to the Georgia Encyclopedia. The mysterious attraction has been there since 1980, and speculation about who designed and paid for it keeps people guessing and tourists coming. Some conservative Christians call the stones satanic, and former French Republican gubernatorial candidate Candace Taylor called for their destruction. Now, the GBI says an explosive device was used around 4 a.m. Wednesday that destroyed a large portion of the structure. One of the inscriptions says to keep the world population at 500 million. Another one says to guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. Susanna Capaluto, WABE News. I sense a podcast in the making. That's just me. In other news, state lawmakers are looking for solutions to help employers struggling to fill thousands of open jobs in Georgia. Our own Raul Bali has more. David Rayner is with the Georgia Chamber of Commerce. Georgia job postings in quarter two topped 460,000 throughout the state. And with the top occupations being software developers, registered nurses, and commercial truck drivers. So you can see that it spans industry sector and business size. The agriculture, aviation, and construction sectors are also in need of workers. Some solutions include more money for more college instructors in high demand industries, also, the idea of allowing undocumented students from Georgia's K-12 system to pay less than out-of-state tuition they currently pay for public colleges and universities. State lawmakers plan on holding more hearings this year before presenting ideas for next year's legislative session. Raul Bally, WABE News. The number of reported COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations continues to rise here in Georgia as we hear from Jess Mador. Data from the Department of Public Health show the state with more than 21,000 new COVID-19 cases since last week and around 1,100 people hospitalized with the virus. With so many people using at-home COVID tests, the official weekly case numbers are likely an undercount, but they do reflect current trends in the pandemic. Still, it's too soon to say whether Georgia is seeing an increase from the July 4th holiday weekend. Jess Mador, WABE News. Alpharetta police officers are expanding their search in terms of recruiting police officers. Just how far are they going? How about the Garden State? Captain Jake, Jakey Brathwaite says it's a way of thinking out of the box 
because he's a New Jersey native. Today and tomorrow, Braithwaite, along with the other Alfred officers, will walk those interested through the application process, conduct interviews, as well as background checks. He says in an effort to become more competitive, he wanted to take unique and unprecedented approach. That is one. The goal is to hire as many officers as possible. Finally, two Atlanta area arts organizations are being recognized as Southern cultural treasures. As Emil Moffitt reports, the honor comes from the nonprofit group South Arts and the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. The Balethnik Dance Company in East Point describes itself as a culturally diverse ballet company that brings in influences from other ethnic cultures. The True Colors Theater Company in Atlanta celebrates the rich tradition of black storytelling. Both were among the 17 organizations in the Southeast led by black, indigenous, and people of color that were recognized for having vital impact on their communities. Each will receive $300,000 in grant money to be used over the next three years. Other recipients include the Deep Community Center in Savannah and the Otis Redding Foundation in Macon. Emil Moffat, WABE News. Pretty cool. And this is Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Pretty sure we have the coolest royalty-free music there is across the land. Closer look continues now from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. How about this? You will get paid to monitor local government meetings like we do. It's a community-focused partnership from the independent local news outlet Canopy Atlanta. It's set to launch, and they're getting some help with City Bureau out of Chicago. Now, at the core of the project, connecting people within their communities, all while building accountability in government. So let's find out more. Joining me now is Sonam Vashi, co-founder and co-director of Canopy Atlanta. And if you're going, I don't know much about Canopy Atlanta, you're going to find out. Also, Max Resnick, the documentary network manager at City Bureau. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Max, got to ask you, you are located in Chicago. Where are you located? I'm calling in from Brooklyn today. My uh, colleagues are all based in Chicago, but I live in New York City. Okay. Are you a Mets or Yankees fan? Total Mets. Mm, I think I just talked to Sonam for the rest of the... <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> Let's begin here because here at Closer Look and, of course, WABE, we all know the importance of locally produced news and information. I mean, there's been an incredible increase. We know in more independent news platforms for a few years now. Um, Max, for our listeners not familiar, tell us about City Bureau and what you all have going on. Sure. City Bureau is a journalism lab, uh, and we reimagine local media. So we're doing that uh, by equipping community members with the skills and resources to produce information that addresses people's needs. Um, We work uh, across the country now with colleagues in Cleveland, Detroit, Minneapolis, and soon in Atlanta uh, to train people to go and attend local public meetings, take notes, and share that information with a collaborative network of local reporters, local community organizers, and people who live in neighborhoods who need to know that information. Oh, and Sonam, for Canopy Atlanta, y'all are still relatively new. I knew when you all were getting started, there was a lot of buzz about it. Now y'all are, you're, you're, you're on a playing field. Welcome. Tell us about Thank it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Canopy Atlanta was, as you're saying, founded two years ago um, by a collaborative network of journalists. Um, we have six co-founders, four of us still lead the organization today. Um, and our goal is really to pay and train at Metro Atlanta residents to report alongside experienced journalists so that we're publishing more stories across Metro Atlanta that directly respond to what community members tell us they want to know. And so, uh, oh, go ahead. 
Oh, I was just going to say we call ourselves a community-led nonprofit newsroom, uh, and we think that that's really important and and uh, missing piece of our local ecosystem. You know, as mentioned, we've seen this explosion, I think, and particularly after, let's be really clear, I think with the last uh, administration in Washington, we've seen this. It's not necessarily something new. I mean, I, growing up, the paper, you always had a, a a local neighborhood paper or a paper that was uh, focusing on one specific community or an area of town in St. Louis. We had the Argus. So we're starting to see this now. Technology has allowed it to be more digital, which I think also is is bringing in a different type of news consumer, would you say, Sona? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's not, um, it, it's so different now. And it's, I think it's really difficult to say that there's a one size fits all approach that we can uh, use as journalists to delivering news and information, right? And so our job is kind of looking around and seeing, well, what communities are not getting the news and information they need? And how can we more sustainably support that happening? And that might be digitally through social media, it can also be through print and neighborhood newsletters. And so it's not our job to say what shape that should take. It's our job to be responsive to what community members say they need. Max, what about you in terms of the importance of locally produced, independent, you know, news and information? Absolutely. It's it's an issue that I'm experiencing here in New York as well. And City Bureau, our, our role is as a network you know, we, we weave together a network of local organizations across cities and increasingly in suburban and rural areas as well who are looking to provide more information about those building blocks of everyday government decisions. Now, you are nonprofit, correct? Yes. And so you all considered nonprofit or? Yes. Yes, we are. Now, are you all giving out socks and mugs? You know, we are actually giving out T-shirts and notebooks and stickers if you're uh, signing up to be a Canopy Atlanta member. So, are you uh, borrowing the public media model? <laughs> we would say uh, uh, flattery is the most uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? <laughs> Let's talk about how this all came about with you all connecting. Who wants to take that, Max? Uh, sure. So uh, last year, we put out the call to invite new cities to join the Documentaries Network. Um, we'd already been pretty closely in touch with Canopy Atlanta. We consider them our, you know, our best buddy friends organization uh, in Atlanta. Um, and so when when they had reached out to join the network, uh, we were really excited to get them started. Uh, there's a cohort of three new cities that are starting uh, local documentaries programs this year, mm-hmm. uh, Atlanta, Fresno, and Omaha. And this is the first time that we're expanding outside of the Midwest. All right. Uh, so when you all saw this opportunity, I imagine it was a it, t- it was a very quick conversation about whether or not you all should partner and get involved. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's because... Metro Atlanta is this place, as you know, that's changing so rapidly in ways that are really promising, but also some that are really troubling. And I think we want to make sure that all Metro Atlantans can get the information they need to make decisions about what their communities should look like. So, you know, in in a city like Atlanta, where uh, there's a lot of counties and cities and new cities coming up pretty frequently, uh, that means a lot of layers of governments, boards, commissions, that are making decisions that affect your life, your your housing, your sidewalks, your health, your neighbors. And so, you know, just today, there's supposed to be a meeting of the Atlanta Zoning Review Board. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is an agency that makes recommendations on whether we should change the vacant house down the street into a townhome or helps greenlight new developments. But, uh, and I could be wrong, but there's nothing on the website that I could find today about today's agenda, mm-hmm. or even if there's a meeting happening, or, you know, if there's going to be anyone outside of the board there to tell us what's going on. As you know, you know, as, as local journalism has changed, I think there's been less capacity to be able to attend every single one of these meetings. So what we wanted to do and work with the Documentaries Network team to do is to involve our most powerful resource to help add that back, which are our community members. All right. Uh, Max, before we move on, let's, for our listeners who may be Curious, when you talk about these other cities, Detroit, Chicago, Cleveland, and Minneapolis, and and are there different, I'm imagining now, there are different setups or processes that you all are involved in in terms of how the Documenters Network works there? Or is it just a very simple template that you sort of, you know, plug and play in for every city? Yeah, that's a great question. Every city has their own. Of course it's a great question. Own... <laughs> yeah, come on, huh? <laughs> 
just sharing credit where credit's due. Every city runs their own program uh, slightly differently. Chicago, where we got everything started is our home-based organization. City Bureau runs that shop. Um, we think that the, the kind of the core information that documenters need to know, what are their rights as community members to attend public meetings? What does it mean to take notes? How can we share that information with the people who need it most? That's kind of the core ingredient that exists across the sites, but every local or every local organization remixes it and designs it differently. So some will be producing zines, some will focus on Instagram for outreach, some will be producing uh, uh, journalism in partnership with local public radio, with uh, with nonprofit news startups, with more legacy media. It takes uh, shape differently in every place. And our mm-hmm. role is to really connect and share all those best practices across the country. Let me stick with you for a moment then. What have been those best practices that you all found are working? And then some where you said, you know what, this hasn't worked and we're going to modify that, or maybe we even take it out. So let's start with the the good. Yeah. So one one great thing that uh, started in Chicago is the the Newswire. It's a weekly blast of curated information that goes out to the wider community about the information that is most important from all of those raw notes that documenters are taking. Mm-hmm. Docs are you know going to these meetings for sometimes three or four hours, sometimes eight to ten, taking copious notes of who said what, who voted for what, and what it means for people who live in those neighborhoods. Not everybody has the time to read all those notes, just like not everybody has time to be at all of those meetings. Mm-hmm. So having that curated space to identify who needs to know what from where is uh, something that the Newswire does. That model has been shared with Cleveland and Detroit uh, and Minneapolis, who have all started their own local versions. Um, and in uh, Cleveland, we have a uh, they started what we're uh, with a community of practice uh, convening session where every month documenters will come together, share what they've learned, what they've been excited about, uh, challenges that they've been facing on assignments. And that space is such a wonderful opportunity to surface additional story leads and for documenters to share skills and resources. And similarly, all of the other sites have adapted that and brought it locally as well. And how many documenters would you say are in are in the networks? And how do you choose yeah. them? Yeah. Uh, so documenters apply. Um, people uh, reach out usually through word of mouth. They'll hear about it from a friend. Uh, to date, we have trained over 1,700 documenters across those four cities, uh, and they've covered 2,300 public meetings uh, across the country over the last five years. Um, and with that, we've paid out, and our partners have paid out a total of over $300,000 directly to local community members for those assignments. Are you also, I guess, in a sense, teaching or giving them sort of the journalism basic one-on-one? Because are they viewed as journalists? How are you all approaching this? I mean, do they still have to follow some of the standard, I guess, the the tenets of what we do as journalists? Or, you know, like, has anyone been thrown out of a meeting because they were like, you know, hooping and hollering? I don't know if that's happened or not. But. Yeah, documenters are trained to use the tools of journalism, which journalism skills are civic skills. How to find out what's going on. Well, they're supposed involved. to be. They're supposed to be, right? <laughs> yeah. And so documenters, when they first sign up, get trained. They get the basics of what, what it means to be doing this type of reporting, the fair uh, the fair reporting privilege, what slander and libel looks like, how to avoid that in the work that they're producing. And they're teaming up with the local coaches. So Canopy Atlanta will be training local Atlanta documenters in those skills and coaching them as they're uh, improving their writing and researching skills. I'm glad you brought up slander and libel before I get to uh, Sonam because I'm, I'm- I'm curious in that regard, do you all have to carry some type of media insurance? I know for a lot of independent news outlets, they they carry media insurance. Do you all do that as well? And it's look, it's, it's my grandfather would say it ain't cheap. Yeah. So uh, at the at the network level, we carry media insurance for, you know, for notes that are being produced. Uh, documenters, you know, because of their of the fair reporting privilege, as long as they're making a good faith effort to describe what happened um, and to be able to make adjustments or edits if they, you know, misspelled somebody's name or misquoted somebody, mm-hmm. then their 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 ability to report on what's going on at these public meetings is mostly covered. The voice you hear is Max Resnick. He's the Documenters Network Manager at City Bureau. And I'm also joined by Sonam Vashi, co-founder and co-director of Canopy Atlanta. We're talking about a new partnership with them, which actually trains residents to monitor local government meetings Sonam, here for you all. Who will be do the training and how many applications do you have? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we haven't opened applications quite yet, but since we've uh, just announced our documentaries program a couple of weeks ago, we have more than 60 people who are just telling us, hey, let us know as soon as you want, or as you open them. So if that's you listening on the radio, please go to canopyatlanta.org and do the same. But in terms of who's going to train them, it's going to be the experienced journalists at Canopy Atlanta. And I, I don't know if we've already said this as well, but we'll also be the ones reviewing and fact-checking the notes that get turned in. Mm -hmm. It's really important to us to make sure that these notes are trustworthy, that they're accurate, that they follow all the journalistic expectations. For us, we're just making the most accessible part of journalistic skills uh, available to everyone. And I think that's, you know, as, as Max said, that that's a skill that every resident should be able to have. All of us know. The three of us, we all know the importance of having a diverse um, group of, of folks who are covering different communities. We know it's been an issue in the past. And, and for some newsrooms, that's still an issue. How do you ensure, Sonam, that you are going to have a very diverse, and not just in terms of ethnic and, 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 and race, but also in, in terms of socioeconomic, you know, all that. How are you going to ensure that this is a very diverse group of documenters? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for us, we just start with trust and listening. So we've done that so far in communities like West End, Forest Park, and Bankhead through our other program, which produces and trains and reports with communities, a series of stories about those neighborhoods. We at Canopy Atlanta prioritize working across Metro Atlanta with communities of color, lower wealth communities, and those that don't have uh, as high civic participation rates as the general. And so we're really talking about places that may have not had their interests represented mm -hmm. at the table in journalism or in government. And so we've just spent a lot of time with our, especially our amazing new community engagement team, uh, just building relationships in communities, especially those that have told us that they felt like journalism and, you know, I'm, I'm speaking as one as well, like journalism and journalists have misrepresented them just about, you know, coming to the neighborhood when there's crime, only showing the deficits. And so by building this trust and by, you know, showing community members, hey, uh, we're going to pay you to do this. We're not going to, I'm not going to take your story and then swoop in and write the story myself. I want you to do this. I want to pay you to do this. And I want you to be able to share this with your community. What levels of government are you all hoping to cover? City, county, just Atlanta or other metro cities? And also in, in terms of when we talk about government, are we also speaking of agencies like, like MARTA, which is not a governmental agency, so to speak, you know? Absolutely. So we'll be starting with 50 agencies across the five county metros. That's Fulton, Clayton, Gwinnett, DeKalb and Cobb. Mm -hmm. And we are going to be doing city and county level agencies. Uh, there are quite a few, as you very well know. So 50 isn't going to do all of them. We are going to do things like the county commission in each county, the board of elections. We know it's a really important issue. Uh, school boards, things that are that affect such uh, a wide swath of residents and things that community members that we've already spoken with told us they want to know more about. But to your point about MARTA, that'll be on the list. Mm -hmm. Housing authorities, we know that housing is a huge topic. Max, let me bring you back to the conversation. I'm curious, with those other cities out there, did you all find there were some government agencies or other agencies that folks really wanted to know more about and cover, like, like transit, housing? Absolutely. In every city, documenters help steer and decide which meetings are covered each week. Uh, in Cleveland, there's a dedicated team of documenters who love going to the mental health resources uh, board meetings. Um, in Chicago, uh, there is, yeah, every every city documenters are helping guide the local teams to prioritize which, which areas they need more information about and which uh, areas uh, and which topics their neighbors do as well. And let me ask you this. So this is the money question. So, Max, I'll, uh, <laughs> you mentioned you all have paid out about $300,000. Is it tough for you all to or has it been relatively easy? And this is a new way of getting funding for you all because, you know, you're dispersing this in cities. And it's not just city bureau, but you're partnership partnering with other independently nonprofit run outlets. Does that help in getting funding? Yeah, so today, City Bureau, uh, we just announced that we received a $10 million uh, investment uh, as part of the Stronger Democracy Award, um, which is going 10 to million? allow us $10 million. You're going to share some of that changer. with your public radio? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> good, good. So, congratulations. Uh, each, 
Thank you. Yeah, we're, so we're, we're thrilled. I mean, we, this will allow us to be able to expand documentaries to so many more uh, communities um, really across the country. Um, and what, uh, what we've found from uh, each of the cities where we've worked to fundraise locally as well is that uh, people really love to see local accountability. They love to see local transparency and they love when community members are trained and skilled up and able to better navigate these systems. So in a lot of ways, it's, it's, it's not too difficult of an ask where, you know, each, each local team is getting resources to be able to invest back into community members. It's not a full-time job. It's a side hustle. We call it like a civic side hustle. Um, and it's a great opportunity for people to pick up a little bit of extra cash and, you know, for folks who would normally not be able to volunteer their time to go to these meetings, it's a great way to show that their work is valued for their work. Let me ask you, someone listening may say, well, I don't know if I'm a, a good candidate for that. Who are you looking for? Who do you think would be a, a good candidate to be a, a, a documenter here? And who don't you want? You can say that too. Like, you don't want... It's anyone who cares about their community, frankly, who cares about their community and wants to serve in a role that helps them get more information. You know, we're not going to tell you what to think or, or, or how to feel about the information that's happening mm -hmm. at your community at those public meetings. But what we want to do is to make sure that you have the skills to share that with others as well. So if you're someone that wants to know what's going on in your neighborhood, if you're concerned about your neighbors, if you want to just learn and feel more connected to your city and to your county and your region, come on down. At the network level, documenters are as young as 18, as old as 83. Sometimes we have full families. In Cleveland, there's a whole family of documenters. That is uh, cool. Parents and children. Yeah, it's 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 awesome. 60% um, are people of color and 75% identify as women or non-binary across the network. Well, after this segment, boy, look out there, Sonam. They're going to come rolling in. <laughs> yes, sir. Please visit us at canopyatlanta.org to learn more, too. And as we wrap up, Sonam, what kind of any new features or projects you all are working on that you want listeners to know about? Absolutely. You know, aside from Atlanta documentaries, we report neighborhood-based stories across Metro Atlanta by listening to and training community members to report with us. So as I said, we've done that in West End, Forest Park, and Grove Park, Bankhead, where we've reported on issues like the neighborhood's rich hip-hop history or issues around potential displacement and development. Uh, now we're starting a new cycle of listening, training, and reporting in South DeKalb around Panthersville, Gresham Park, Kaler McAfee. So if you're a member of those community communities and you want to tell stories about your neighborhood, please reach out at canopyatlanta.org. All right. Sonam Vashi, co-founder and co-director of Canopy Atlanta. Also Max Resnick, Mets fan, the Documenters Network Manager at City Bureau. Thank you both for taking the time. Good conversation. Always enjoy talking to fellow journalists about what we do and why we do it for good reason. Thanks, Rose. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. The American Medical Women's Association has been in existence since 1915. If you don't know about that organization, well, you're about to learn, so stay with us. And like many medical organizations, the association has issued a disapproving reaction to the Supreme Court of the United States overturning Roe v. Wade. And in their initial statement, in part it reads, quote, the American Medical Women's Association stands firm in the right of individuals to access comprehensive reproductive health care, which includes abortion. Abortions performed by trained health care practitioners are safe and can be life-saving, close quote. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Dr. Teresa Rohr Gretschke Burr, hope I got that right, president of the American Medical Women's Association and professor of medicine at the Augusta University and University of Georgia Medical Partnership. Madam President, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. And I'll just go by Teresa for this discussion, if that's all right. What well, can I call you, Dr. Teresa? <laughs> oh, please, that'd be great. <laughs> After that $150,000 it cost me to get my education, I, I certainly earned it. <laughs> well, you earned it, and we should call you that. I want to go back to a, a couple of things that I read, a couple of headlines, and for some people, they say kind of sums up what we're talking about here. Here was one that said, quote, for doctors, abortion restrictions create an impossible choice when providing care, 
through your lens, how much truth is in that statement? Oh, there's so much truth in that statement. You know, the, the discussion that a physician has with their patient in the exam room is one of reverence, to be honest. It, it is something that they let us into their lives. They let us into portions of their of their health and their and their faith and their community. It's a really it's almost kind of like a sacred discussion. Mm-hmm. And the decision by the Supreme Court actually kills our ability to have that kind of a interaction because it, it, it kills our shared decision making. You know, you know, go ahead. Well, it, it's just that there is never a time that I as a physician should put in my own bias on what a patient needs to decide to do. I mean, I don't always agree with everything that they do, but I have to try to take their their experiences, their concerns into into the decision that we make on how to treat their health care, you know, how to take care of themselves. And it's it's a very delicate balance, and it, it's something that is quite honestly, it's the part of medicine that I love. It's the ability to to help them come to a decision, even if it's not the one that I would choose. Hmm. And even before last week's ruling, there are folks in science and the medical field were voicing concern. I want to I want to quote what Kara C. Hozier wrote for Scientific American back in May. She writes, quote, the goal of law, as with medicine, should always be to find the balance between benefit and harm. The justices have landed squarely on the side of harm. And I've been reading more about this. And the question is, when it comes to medical and science community and what we their expectations we have for them especially with folks like you who are doctors who are providing care and then you have legislation that comes in that's an opposite of that how do you all have this conversation with your patients or the conversations you're even having within yourselves and in, in trying to bring some type of balance to this can you bring balance between benefit and harm based on this new law? Go ahead. It's really, really tough. It it, it is because, you know, when we graduate from medical school, we take an oath that says first do no harm. So everything we do, we try to do in the light of how can I make life better for this person? How can I make life better for my community? You know, how can we improve healthcare so that diseases don't happen that can that you know my goal especially as a primary care physician is one that i try to prevent things from happening i'd much rather prevent a disease prevent a complication than have to deal with it after the fact although gratefully we have great interventions that can help but can you imagine being a physician standing in front of a patient who needs health care and not being able to give it mm-hmm. you know worrying about the fact that your inability to offer that care is going to result in a, a significant harm. You know, people, I, I, I've been hearing, oh, you know, it, it's, it's about if you really have to because the mother's life is in danger, you could do it. Well, but, but let's think about an example, if, if that's okay. You know, you have a woman who's 17 weeks pregnant, and she has premature rupture of membranes, which basically means her water breaks, mm-hmm. There's no way that child is going to survive. At that moment, the mother's life is not in danger. But as I wait for days or hours, the chance that she's going to become septic and die increases. So as a physician, that life is still, her life is not in danger at the very beginning. But how, when do, how long do I have to wait? Mm-hmm. How long do I have to wait to, to terminate that pregnancy? Do I have to wait until she's on death's door? I mean, those are the kinds of things that, you know, we shouldn't have to make those kinds of choices. We want to do the thing that's right for our patients. And the other component that people don't think about is it's not always the physical health of the mother. There's also the mental health of the mother. There are situations in which continuing that pregnancy is going to be incredibly difficult for that for that mom. And it, it doesn't always have to be a physical thing. And to not be able to provide the health care that they need, that, that is really putting your physician in an incredibly difficult place. I want to continue with that for a moment because I'm wondering, Dr. Teresa, 
when you mentioned this puts a physician in a difficult place. What do you what consequences do you think this will have on more folks wanting to continue in reproductive health specialties and also the mental health for doctors who are in in the middle of this? And then let's be clear too also because of the climate that we're in too, safety concerns as well. There are a lot of optics around that you know, folks who work in this space have to be concerned about when it comes to their own personal safety. And you oh, talk to absolutely. physicians all the time. I mean, we actually have they're, they're, the, the bulletproof vest that one of our physicians had to wear back in the late 70s as she traveled to clinic um, to, to perform health care with terminations. I mean, that still exists. You know, I read a story the other day of a woman who required a late term abortion because of her, the medical complications, and she had to go to another state to have it done. That physician who did that for her was later killed in his church. While he was in church, he was, he was murdered. Hmm. He saved her life by being able to perform that late term abortion and then suffered by losing his own. I mean, those kinds of stories, they're not uncommon, you know, unfortunately. And the other, you know, perhaps a, a situation that we haven't really talked about is the fact that we have medical students that will be coming through the process, mm-hmm. not having learned the procedures, you know, that they could, that they needed to learn in order to, you know, perform their duties. So we have, med- let's, let's just even think, for example, we have a physician shortage in Georgia. Mm-hmm. No question, we're working really hard on that. Now, you have an interest in OBGYN, perhaps family medicine, and you want to learn how to be able to do procedures. If you're in a state where you cannot do those, or they're extremely restricted, you're, you're going to perhaps leave to go to a state where you are able to have those included in your residency program. And we know that once you leave the state, the chances of you coming back are pretty slim, especially mm-hmm. if you're not able to provide the care that you want to give. That is going to significantly decrease the number of physicians we're able to train and recruit to practice in our state. And for states like Georgia, where the plight of rural hospitals and facilities and medical centers and, and everything tied to that is still already at, at a crisis level, what are your concerns about being able to meet the, the needs for folks living in, in the rural parts of our nation? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if we think about it and just looking at Georgia, we already have the second highest mortality rate in the country. We don't want to be number one. I mean, we want to be number one for lots of other things, but not for maternal mortality. And so we know that that rate is only going to increase. Now, so we're going to have fewer people going in, fewer of our own medical students going into OBGYN in our own state. And so having, we already have pockets where we just don't have OBGYNs. And so those patients have to travel further. And now you're going to decrease that even more so? No, no. You know, we have to be able to think about the care that our patients need and be able to provide it, you know? I never thought in, in all the years that when I was a journalist that we would have a, a need for a reporter. I have a colleague who's going to become a dis or misinformation reporter um, because it's needed. But there is a lot of information, misinformation used by opponents of abortion rights. I want to be clear about that. I think we need to be clear and fair. What do you hear most often that people get wrong when they talk about when they're in opposition of abortion rights and, and actual science and, and, and what medicine says? Well, you know, we saw it just in this recent decision. One of the Supreme Court justices called it barbaric. It's, you know, if you think about it, especially now that we can do um, early terminations with medications, there's nothing barbaric about it. You take one medication, it blocks the production of progesterone, and then the next day, or within a little bit of time, you take four additional pills of a different medication that loosens the cervix and allows the products of conception to pass through nothing barbaric about that. The one thing is it actually helps to save your fertility for later on. You know, we also have the ability to use methotrexate, for example, if somebody's having an ectopic pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, being able to stop that, that pregnancy really early on allows that woman to maintain her fertility. 
I mean, you know, back in the day, we used to always have to go in and surgically remove it. Now you can take care of it with a pill, save her the, cons- the consequences of a surgical procedure, and save her fallopian tube. Mm-hmm. I mean, that means you have increased ability to have that child later. Those those are the things. Oh, my gosh, Ohio was had some ruling that they wanted us to take the the pregnancy from the fallopian tube and insert it into the uterus. I mean, that was the stupidest thing I ever heard. Yet you can't, you can't do that. It's, I think folks just have this impression of there's this little baby they can just reach in there and take and just replace it and put it mm-hmm. someplace else. That's, that's, not, that's not happening. Well, let me ask you this then, Dr. Teresa. What would fair, I guess, safe legislation around abortion procedures and, and reproductive health care look like to you? I mean, there's a lot in there. I mean, there could be a lot of provisions and a lot of mandates, but overall, what does that look like? What could, should it look like? It, it should look like get the heck out of the health care, stay out of the uterus. You know, health should be between the physicians and their patients and other health care pro- providers. That's where the decisions need to be made. It shouldn't be made at a legislative level. It shouldn't be made anyplace else. I mean, we already have a hard enough time, to be honest, dealing with what the insurance companies will allow us or not allow us to do in terms of what they will pay for. It doesn't necessarily stop us from getting some of the, the care that we need. But think about it. If, if we were able to, one, provide contraception to everybody and anybody that wanted it, Boom. Just have it easy, have it accessible, have it at low or no cost, have it be really effective. Then we could markedly decrease the number of unplanned pregnancies. But then let's have you be able to get the health care that you need. And remember, a termination and abortion is health care. It's not a religious covenant. Um, we have to be able to have that health care provided when it is needed, wherever it's needed. It shouldn't have to depend on the state that you live or the rural area that you live in, you know, or the background of the person that you're working with. I was not around. I was very aware of, as I say, back in the day when folks were trying to seek what other way they could in order to get this, get the procedure. We know about the coat hangers and, and all of that, and there have been so many documented stories you fear that this nation now does regress back to women possibly seeking some very unhealthy, if not deadly, al- what they might consider alternatives to going into a clinic and then having the procedure? Absolutely. I mean, I, I have colleagues who, when they were going through residency programs and when they were going through their training before Roe v. Wade, they admitted four to five patients a day, a day who had abortions gone bad, septic abortions, perforations, illnesses. I mean, and some of those women lost their lives Mm -hmm. and some of them lost their uteruses, their ability to have a child. I don't think that outlawing abortion is not going to take abortion away. Outlawing abortion is going to take away legal and safe abortions. What we're going to see is an increase in the complications. You know, pregnancy is not just a simple thing. You know, there, there's a, a fair number of complications that occur because of pregnancy. And it's, it's a choice that, that you make to have to become pregnant and to carry that pregnancy through. And it shouldn't be made by somebody else for you. Yes, we are very concerned that the, there's going to be a significant increase in illegal and unsafe abortions and that women are going to have complications, and that physicians are going to be put in the really difficult position of when can I do this procedure, how can I save this person's life, and will I go to jail if I do it too early? I mean, that kind of stuff is really going to be a a difficult path for all of us. We're used to medical associations obviously always coming out and talking about the dangers of use of tobacco and and smoking and things of that that nature. We're used to uh, the associations making statements as obviously recently here with the, with the pandemic, we're used to that. And that's what people expect of you all with this statement, the firm statement that you all have put out against the Supreme court overturning Roe versus Wade. Did you have to go back and forth, speak with your boards? Did you have to talk to committee members to make sure 
all the narrative, all the language, because folks may not realize this, that when it comes to making statements, even when we had social calls for social justice here, even I've heard organizations saying we had to carefully craft our our statement as it relates to black people being alive, (laughs) things of that nature. Did you all have to grapple with that as well? No. And I say no as succinctly and direct as that, because back in the 70s, when this was becoming a very you know, big issue when Roe v. Wade was first being discussed, and even before then, the, the physicians that have been part of the American Medical Women's Association has have always been in support of health care and the rights of women to seek the, and obtain the health care that they need. So I think back in those early days, there might have been some you know, discussion and, and arguments. But even from as early as 1915, I mean, we got together because we needed to be able to ha- get appropriate health care for women. All throughout history, women physicians have really been at the forefront of looking for and finding and championing health care for women, whether it was designing women and infant um, hospital systems, whether it was helping to provide foster care, whether it was encouraging and, and providing contraceptive care for those women when they needed it. At every single institution, at every single spot, we have been there to say women physicians need to help, need to be in charge, and women mm-hmm. physicians need to be at the forefront of promoting increasing access and appropriate care for their women patients. So what's next for you all? I mean, I know obviously every state is going to be different. Um, we've seen some states already enact legislation. I know you all are paying attention to this. What is next for the association in in this regard? We have so many different ways going on. You know, first we're gathering stories because we want to have women tell us their stories and men. We want everybody to tell us their stories in a way that is um, easy for people to understand. I mean, you know, for example, one of the things that has kind of come up about is, is the impact that this is actually going to have on infertility. You know, infertility management and treatment. That's something that's not being discussed. You know, what about those embryos that are frozen? Are the fertility clinics going to get in trouble if their freezer goes down? Are they mm-hmm. going to be sued for, you know, for um, unintended death? I mean, there's so many different things. So a couple of things that we're doing. One is we're working with a number of different medical organizations to come together so that we all speak with a similar voice when it comes to the needs uh, for appropriate health care for women. We're also working in various states so that those physicians in those states are going to be covered and know what the rules are. And we're supporting organizations and folks and people that are that are at the forefront to make sure that women are be able to access the care that they need. Do you see so it? Do, but do you see a need also to, and maybe it's on the local level, you all are equipping your, your, doc, your physicians here who are part of the association with the knowledge, and they probably already know anyway, but as it works, as it lends to working with lawmakers. Absolutely. And all, all throughout time, and, you know, and especially more recently, um, we've really been focused on, you need to talk to your elected officials. We need to be able to discuss this in a way that is not defensive, that is not accusatory. So yes, I mean, even within you know the last few elections, we've been uh, pairing up with voter registration uh, folks, with the Women's League of uh, the League of Women's Voters, with Vote ER, which is a, an organization that encourages us to talk to our patients in the exam room, not to say how to vote, but just to make sure that they're registered, because what what you do in the voting booth affects what I can do in my exam room, and I think that interaction wasn't recognized as much I and mean, we certainly see that now so yes we want we want to interact with our elected officials but we also want to interact with just everybody mm-hmm. i mean the individual person you know they need to kind of understand that even though they don't think that this is affecting them individual there is an effect on the people that they know i mean one in four women in this country have had an abortion at some point in their life maybe you didn't know that maybe you did not understand that mm-hmm. You know, and it, it may not have been just because they felt like it. I mean, that choice is never an easy one. I've seen women struggle with that. So we want to have those discussions kind of out and about so that people can kind of realize that this is this is about them. It's not a, about you know, a person way down the street. This is about them, and this affects their communities and their families. Can you recall, Dr. Teresa, when there's been 
what it appears with the credible medical associations, the collective disagreement with the political or legislation that you all are imposed to. Can you think of a time when we've had this? You know, back back in the seventies, absolutely before even Roe v. Wade got going. But I mean, if you if you think about it, throughout the course of history, even more very recently, you know, let's think about you know the the arguments that have gone on about infertility, you know, or the use of surrogacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are states in which you can't have a surrogate carry your child, you know, or there are states like Georgia where if you have a surrogate carry your child, even if it's your genetic makeup. You have to adopt that child once it's born. Now it's your child. You just had somebody carry it. I mean, there, there's all those various rules and regulations all about. And over time, things have kind of changed. So, yes, I, I think that we can certainly make an impact. Everybody has that responsibility, and we certainly have seen things change. We have seen rules change. You know, it used to be that you'd have to take your husband with you when you went to go get birth control. You don't have to do that anymore. You know, you used to have to have your husband with you when you signed for a loan for a car. You don't have to do that anymore. Yes, things can change. The world can evolve. Dr. Teresa Rohr Gretschgeber, president of the American Medical Women's Association and professor of medicine at the Augusta University and University of Georgia Medical Partnership. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that is it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our summer intern is Lennox Johnson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And of course, if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And you can also listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. and in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look or any other WAB program that we hope you love. Subscribe wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.